listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, you awesome little ding-dongs. Welcome to the premiere of Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. This season, I am gathering with several of my favorite people to talk about various works of the master of the macabre himself. And these are the books and short stories that even if they didn't turn them into ardent kingophiles like myself, at least got their hooks in them and lingered in their memories for years to come. And in this episode in particular, this is very special because not only is it the opener of the season, it's also the first Stephen King book I ever read. And that book is the claustrophobic, gut-churning, early introduction to the phenomenon of parasocial relationships known as misery. And by the way, this podcast will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't either read Misery or watched it, you may want to do that first or just join us for the ride because it's going to be fun if you don't care about spoilers. And joining me are three voices that should be very familiar to folks that have joined us for season one. Firstly, we have Chris from the 80s High podcast. And last but certainly not least, we have Josh and Kelly from the always amazing movie podcast, Press Play and Scream. Uh, They joined me for the Twilight Zone movie episode in season one. And now they're bringing their own multifaceted perspectives on misery and because Josh is an accomplished author who is also has a film school background. That'll be really exciting. And Kelly, who is an avid reader, is also highly experienced at the art of being a number one fan. Although I think it's safe to assume she hasn't brought any painkillers and sledgehammers to the party. Is that right, Kelly? I'm this not right, Allison. That's oh. a surprise for later. <laughs> Well, so anyway, guys, welcome to the show. I am so glad we're all here gathering together in one space. It might get a little crowded, might be a little chaotic. It might be a little intense and sweaty and argumentative and laughter abounding everywhere, but it's going to be a great time. Don't you think? No, probably not. I think we're going to drop the ball completely. I think you've proved <laughs> some of this on every conceivable level. I mean, my God, you expect me to be exciting? Really? Oh, come no. on. Listen, listen, don't <laughs> undersell yourself. You are here for a reason. I've been wanting to do, well, I've been wanting to do a podcast forever, but a podcast where I get to talk about my literary hero that I've God, I've worshipped the ground that Stephen King has walked on since I was 11 years old. Uh, that doesn't come without criticisms either. It's not that I don't find fault in Mr. King, but I will say that I feel like I grew up with him. And having this be the first book of his that I read just feels very apropos because, oh, you know, it makes you into the fan, the number one fan. If anything, I felt like a number one fan after I read this book, which is just kind of disturbing. And Kelly, you said it was your first of his too, correct? Right. Yeah. And I was in fourth grade. Um, pretty much everybody in my class, like we all started reading Stephen King at about the same time. And Misery was my first. I think it might actually still be my favorite, but I love all of his early stuff. Did you say fourth grade? I did say fourth grade. Yes. <laughs> Explains Dear- a lot, doesn't it? 
Dear God, <laughs> I thought I was young at sixth grade. And here you are busting out the fourth grade. I think I was still reading Goosebumps in fourth grade <laughs> or Beverly Cleary or one of those. I can't even remember. Um, that is amazing. And I want to talk about that a little bit too, because I feel like coming to this book in particular as a young reader, there are some things happening here that are, wow, they're very adult, right? I mean, the, the way the book opens is he's in a dozed state. He, there's a lot of uh, the sort of onomatopoeia happening where he's hearing like a buzzing sound in his head that like it starts out almost unintelligible and he's building this metaphor about pain and tidal forces like in the ocean and how the pilings are exposed and then they're covered up by the tide whenever the painkillers kick in. Things like that, that I don't know, when you're between the ages of eight and 11, they just don't quite have the same ring as they might as an adult. I mean, yeah. And as a kid, I feel like a lot of it kind of went over my head, like the whole claustrophobic, like the claustrophobic aspect I didn't really pick up on until yeah. I was reading it older. But the the thing that struck me reading it and watching it when I was younger, it was very black and white for me. Like Paul Sheldon is great. Annie Wilkes is possibly literally the, the devil. And yeah. then I reread the book last year and I rewatched the movie on Saturday. And I mean, Annie Wilkes, obviously the villain, and I know we're going to get into this, but I mean, she's not a hundred percent evil and right. Paul Sheldon's kind of a dick. <laughs> he is. He is. I, I especially got that from him in the movie which we'll definitely talk about in any of these uh, episodes, by the way, as we talk about Stephen King's works, if there is a film adaptation or a TV adaptation, a lot of people have seen, especially we need to talk about that in conjunction. Like when, when I was on Chris's show, 80s high, and we talked about it, we had to talk about everything, right? We talked about the book, the miniseries, the uh, two-part movie, there was no way to really talk about just the one thing without kind of invoking a little bit of everything because it's all part of the cultural experience of the story, I think. Yeah. And part of the fun too, is that there are the differences. And so there's an entry point for anyone, whether you've seen the movie, the miniseries, the book. And I think the same with Misery, whether you've read the book, seen the movie or both, you have this entry point into this story and it's kind of fun to learn how they differ and how they're similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess before we get too much further into this, I do want to just give a quick lowdown for folks that are kind of new into this realm or curious about more. Maybe you are one of those people that are, don't care about spoilers first. So just the quick brass tacks. Misery is a psychological horror thriller that was published in 1987 by Viking Press. So that was some eight years after King's smash debut of Carrie, which I think was released in 1979. Someone might correct me on that. It was released as a film directed by Rob Reiner in 1990, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. Kathy earned an Oscar for her powerhouse performance as Annie Wilkes. The lowdown synopsis is Paul Sheldon is a best-selling romance author who likes to retreat from where he lives in New York City, which is, again, just the great depiction of authors in, in books and movies is always hilarious, right? These famous, big, rich authors living in New York, if only. Um, I think every author like 
think Josh and I in particular just kind of like laughing and shaking our heads a little to ourselves. Well, we're not really in uh, Paul Sheldon territory in terms of or, or income. So I have no problem believing that somebody like him would live there, but someone like me uh, couldn't live in a dumpster there. I couldn't afford it. God, no kidding, right? But he retreats every time that he's about to finish a, no- a new novel. He goes to Colorado to a fictional town of Sidewinder. Um, which King has set a few stories in. I think most notably The Shining has a foothold there, although it's more like that's the city that's at the base of the mountains before you go up to the Overlook Hotel. But that's like the sort of Western version of Castle Rock, which is King's uh, main setting, the setting that he has in the state of Maine. But he goes there to finish his novels. And when he's done, he always enjoys a cigarette and a bottle of Dom Perignon, as Annie likes to call it in the movie, or Dom Perignon champagne, before he slides his freshly typed manuscript. Again, that's another thing that modern authors, we kind of think about what it might be like to type a manuscript on a typewriter versus a, a computer. And so the thought of that being your one and only copy of your book in the world is this big sheaf of paper. That's to me is already the anxiety is setting in. He slides this into his satchel and then he gets into his vintage Mustang, hits the road, blizzards coming. He's hoping to get ahead of it. He ends up stuck right in the middle of it. His car goes off the road, rolls over a few times, pretty bad wreck, gets all smashed up. His legs get crushed. He might've otherwise died if not for the generous appearance of his savior, Miss Annie Wilkes who also happens to be his number one fan. And because she's a former nurse, which we'll touch on a little more later, she has the know-how to splint his broken bones. And, you know, she has a closet full of painkillers that she presumably stole from work when she was still working as a nurse um, and other medical supplies. But it becomes apparent soon after that Annie has no intention of letting Paul leave. And it's especially after she reads the latest misery novel that just came out in stores, like right before all this happened and discovers that it's the last book in the series because Paul, who's been a bit disillusioned by his career at this point, he's decided to kill off the titular character of his blockbuster romance series. And I guess it's safe to say that Annie doesn't take that so well. And she decides that she's going to give Paul the encouragement he needs to power through a brand new sequel that will resurrect misery from the dead and everyone can live happily ever after. Everybody who's seen misery, read misery, knows that the horror that unfolds between these two people is, well, it's something, isn't it? It's a love story for the ages. It's (laughs) two people coming together, finding common ground and just really falling in love. It's beautiful. Overcoming all obstacles. (laughs) That's right. Chris is kidding about this, but I don't think Kelly actually is. Um... (laughs) I mean, okay. I'm, I'm not 100% anti Paul Sheldon, but I'm, I'm, she's not okay. You guys, I know that. No. Paul is, well, and I think that it's fair to say that he came into this as a very up his own ass kind of guy because he, he'd been divorced. I think, I think the book mentions he's twice divorced. He has a grown child. He doesn't really communicate with. He feels very resentful of the books that gave him his fame. 
And in the book, the manuscript that he had finished writing before he hit the road was a complete departure from misery. It's called Cars. And it's about these these kind of street hood guys that they steal cars. It's very manly. It's very you know, rough and tumble masculine. Like he's going off into this. I'm trying to think of an author that might parallel with that, that sort of ultra masculine. um, Well, Hemingway to a certain degree. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, Versus like a Daniel Steele, which is kind of the realm that he was in, or maybe not quite Daniel Steele, but somebody who writes these kind of Victorian era bodice ripper kind of stories. Right night and day kind of difference. Sorry, Allison, real quick. I don't know if you want to go back and correct it. Is the book called Fast Cars? It is Fast Cars. Thank you so much. Such a different thing that he's trying to branch off into. And I feel like that is Mm. like a him trying to reclaim his ego and masculinity from all these years of writing for women. And this, you know, there's a bit of a dickishness to it, but this like, I feel like I have to reclaim myself. And he carries that with him a bit like he's trying to rebuild his his image and his career into this new thing and to free himself from the shackles of this this damsel lady that made him famous and it's very clear that he resents that right well the thing that strikes me is that yeah he he both is very in love with himself and completely loathes himself at the same time and i yeah. love how that is put forth in both the book and the movie that it's you know this sort of impatience and smugness and weariness with the whole thing is just you know very patchy wallpaper over his own you know shriveled psyche which reflects a lot in king's own psyche and he admits to this even a bit in his memoir on writing when he talks about as he was writing this story it was sort of in the throes of the worst part of his drug addiction yes as well as feeling very shackled to the horror label that had made him famous and he's tried and I think now he's very much succeeded, but at that time he was really trying to separate himself from being a horror writer and writing fiction. He wasn't trying to just write horror. He wanted to be able to expand. That was one reason why he created the Richard Bachman, what's the word? Alter ego, a number, number clue. Yes, exactly. And he had actually intended to release Misery under the Richard Bachman name, But then that identity was exposed before he could do that. So it was released as a Stephen King book and it set itself apart in many ways because it it was very grounded in reality. It didn't have the supernatural, fantastical elements that a lot of King's books were known to have. There was no telepathy or telekinesis or fire starting capabilities or anything like that. It was very much a gritty story of conflict between these two people we all have our own different encounter with this particular story. And throughout the season, as I talk to different guests about the particular story of topic, I'd love to hear about people's experience. So like for me, I'll get mine out of the way first, because mine isn't nearly as interesting as I'm sure anybody else's will be here, but I'm going to use a lot of dated references henceforth. So in the spring of 1991 at the tender age of 11, I watched the Rob Reiner movie on a VHS tape. that we rented from a locally owned video store okay it's (laughs) those words don't go together anymore just they don't you translate that complete (laughs) nonsense you just said Um, can can you say that in gen z i feel like everyone who has that who can also make that reference like i can and like josh can we all need to take our vitamin d supplements now and probably some calcium pills because our bones are very old exactly yes i need my nightly geritol and whiskey um 
But growing up, I had seen commercials on TV advertising a subscription to the Stephen King library. You could sign up for this service and you would get a new Stephen King book like as it came out. It was like this whole thing. If you research the Stephen King library ads on YouTube, you'll see them. And they were hot and heavy around this period of sort of the late 80s, early 90s. But I had watched the movie. I had watched Kathy Bates win her Oscar. And I remember being immediately struck by how inspired I was to see that because I saw Kathy Bates immediately and thought of like, oh my God, she looks like me. She is this kind of a large woman who is not like Hollywood gorgeous. You know, she just looks like somebody that you would see on the street. And I just immediately like glommed onto that. And she won an Oscar and she's just going up on the stage in this beautiful dress. And I was just like, I don't know, like something took hold of me then where I'm like, I need to see this movie and read this book. Little 11 year old me. I went, I gathered up my babysitting money and I went to B Dalton booksellers <laughs> again, <laughs> womp womp at the mall in Pontiac, Michigan, where I lived at the time and purchase the book. And as I will post it and have actually posted on my personal Twitter account, a picture of this book, I bought it for $5 and 95 cents. I assume <laughs> at this speed Alton booksellers, and it is all beat to hell. Now my book is because um, I've read it so many times. And from there, my obsession was born. I've read that book. I don't know, probably a dozen or more times I've lost count. And in the year since I've gone on to read about every Thing King has written. That's my encounter. It turned me into the super fan. It turned me into the Annie Wilkes in my own way. So Kelly, I, since you, I know that this was your first book as well, and it was fourth grade. We talked about this a little bit, but like how, what, like, did you have to hide it from your parents? Like what happened here? Okay. So fun story about that. One of our teachers in the fourth grade was just horrified that her entire class of like fourth grade weirdos are all reading different Stephen King books and passing them back and forth. <laughs> and oh, she, great. she threatened to tell our parents with like a letter and then excerpts from these books. And she's like, if I see you reading them, I'm, I'm going to take it away. And it was like, we're in fourth grade. Yeah. How do you think we're getting these books, ma'am? Like, <laughs> you know, like, or do you think we're using like our paper route money? we're in fourth grade. We don't have jobs. We have parents with jobs. That's how we're getting these books. Yeah. And my, I was, I was talking about this with my mom. Um, I think last year maybe. And she was like, well, we didn't really know who Stephen King was. And I was like, yeah, bullshit. You did. Because we also, uh, my entire life had a subscription to people magazine and, you know, he's not even then, you know, he was not a nobody. No, you know, he was definitely, I would say a household name even then. And I, I've always liked books that are about avid readers. Um, mm -hmm. Usually it's more like, oh, here's Matilda Wormwood and she's a sweetheart of a girl and she's just like you, except she can also solve mysteries kind of and move things with her mind. Right. Annie Wilkes, really not somebody you would necessarily want to identify with, although I do think it would be safe to say that she is the patron saint of fandom. Thank you for using that. I was, yes, I was, you told me to. Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly, yes, that, that is perfect. And I think as well, if, if she were real and living in this time, 
she would have the foremost authority podcast of Misery Chastain and it would just be like very exhaustive and well-researched. Yeah. And we wouldn't know anything about her past. You know, we wouldn't know really much about, I mean, she, she would just come off on the show as a very devoted Misery fan and, you know, everything else would be in that scrapbook, man. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so. um, did you see that video? It's probably five-ish years old somebody went to a bookstore dressed like Annie Wilkes and like was asking if they had the new Misery Chastain book by Paul Sheldon (laughs) and the bookstore people were like what are you talking about this is not like no we don't know who that is and she just started slowly getting angrier and angrier until finally she was like something about what kind of cockadoodie bookstore is this (laughs) (laughs) you can't have Annie really Wilkes good. impression without cockadoody. Yeah. Or, no. It, you know, you got to use that word or dirty bird. Oogie woogie. Yeah. Don't forget oogie woogie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Annie does not like to swear. I also love in misery where she's, she's swearing like she's the characters in that book that she hates and that she yes. makes him burn. Yes. And she's so bad at it. Like, give me some of that bitchly corn. And it's, it's like, <laughs> ma'am, that's not how this works. That's oh, not how you use any of those words. I forgot. I had forgotten about that until I watched it the other night. And that was absolutely fantastic. And I remember thinking to myself, your argument is completely not there. He's trying to explain that these are street kids. These are, you know, they grow up boosting cars and they're in gangs and they're in a life of crime. Like this is how it would talk. And you're talking about how you would speak this rural farm woman from Colorado. No, you wouldn't necessarily talk that way, but she you know, she was off on her own tangent at that point. There was no bringing her back. She was just pissed that she didn't, you know, have another misery book to read. But what about you, Josh? When did you come to this? Cause it sounds like we're kind of similar that we've both read the book many, many times. So how old were you and what's your story, man? Well, uh, my original awareness of the whole thing was, uh, as that it was sort of treated as a modern classic of cinema. And, uh, you know, again, Kathy Bates won the Oscar that year, as you said, and, So I had an awareness of it that way, but when I was sort of about to head off to college, Kel gave me a cardboard box filled with kind of a Stephen King starter pack that had been, you know, all of her old copies, including that copy of Misery. Nice. So, and I still have it. So that was one of the earlier ones that I read, and that's always been one of my favorites, uh, even from back then. I sort of connected with it because I've always considered myself to be a writer ever since I could crawl basically so I'm reading it and I'm thinking wow you know first of all I love the structure of it I love how it's letting us inside of his head and letting us read these excerpts that are ridiculous uh, and yet weirdly kind of inspired at certain points and you know definitely informed by his surroundings I liked that it was about the creative process and that King had managed to twist that into horror and mm-hmm. concepts of addiction which were abstract to me at that age and so I was entertained by it but in the years since then I mean I've become now a professional romance ghostwriter and that's a very different thing from just sort of working on your own shit when you're not at your day job right and between that and you know connecting way more as an adult with the heavy themes of addiction as well and really being able to internalize that now I would definitely call it my my favorite and I know why and it's because really I didn't understand at a younger age, he didn't have to twist all that hard to reveal the genuine visceral horror that being a professional writer can be. People think it's, 
you know, easy and you just make stuff up. But when it really is about publish or perish and, you know, uh, sweat that comes from blowing deadlines and the pressure of it and just sort of grasping at anything that's around you or in your head or stream of conscious nonsense and just spewing that onto the page just to just to make it just to get to the end i mean i i i really get it now as this being his most genuine primal scream into the eldritch void of himself of examining himself and tearing himself to shreds uh because of also where he was in terms of his addictions and but also you know, the love and hate for himself at the same time, as I mentioned, the hate for his own success, the basis of that success. And, you know, being so good at something that you have come to uh, not just find tedium in, but really kind of uh, have a deep derision for and, and despise. Yes. You put to words so much of what I can relate to as well as often on again, professional author as well. Uh, the sense that a lot of that anxiety and then a lot of that kind of weariness and cynicism that kind of sets in after you've been through the ringer of the publishing machine a few times and 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 that in itself is such an arc that I think the people that that can see it can get it and maybe the people that don't see it because they can't relate to it or whatever that's fine but the people that can find that in there absolutely it's so important and also I feel like what King was starting to do a bit with The Shining which was Honestly, I think that was his uh, third release book. It came out after Salem's Lot. He was only starting to toy with like the huge success. Once Carrie was published, he was a blockbuster from the get. I mean, he sold his agent or rather sold the paperback rights to Carrie for half a million dollars. And what was this is the late seventies, which at that point, <laughs> I mean, getting a half million dollars today is a pretty big freaking deal but you're getting it back then that's pretty much a rags to riches story which in many ways it was for him misery really feels like this is king after eight years of working in this industry and the malaise and the inertia that's kind of set in despite the success and then it becomes a bit of a redemptive arc for his art in and of itself which i i really love and honestly it could use a bit of that shot in the arm myself at this point in time, I might actually set about going and really diving back into this book. I mean, it's imprinted on my memory so well. So I was able to watch the movie and do a bit of a light reading of the book to sort of get reacquainted with it. But King has a way of like delving into and showing those kinds of insights in, in a way that is so truthful and so difficult in many ways to look at, probably because it is so honest. But yeah, Chris, I would love to hear your story with it. Yeah, for sure. I love all of your contributions to this discussion and entry points to it. I think for me, it's not as robust, but I did really enjoy the movie. I cannot recall when I first saw it, but it's a movie I have seen multiple times and always just found this really interesting, gripping kind of thriller of a story. And recently tried to acquaint myself while not reading the book, at least with some of the differences between them. In high school, a couple of friends and I made our own version of Misery, <laughs> basically our own adaptation of the, of the movie. So that's my contribution. I, I do want to say as a King connection, though, the closest I got to that is when I took a fiction writing course in college. Our textbook was on writing, which oh, is yeah. King's oh. book. 
And what a great textbook to have. Probably the best textbook you could have for any class. It's a fantastic text and, and slash memoir and really exciting. So I that is my kind of entry point into King. Haven't read a lot of his works, but really have been a fan of a, a lot of his, at least adaptations to movie, which as we all know, are hit or miss. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And Chris and I, we talked about this a little earlier, but this story has been adapted to stage a couple of times, which is great. This is the beautiful thing about this story is I feel like it is ripe for adaptation. It's perfect for it. You only really have two main characters in a pig, but they're mostly in a single set. And it's really just about the two of them. So you can do this on the stage. And Chris, it wasn't, we were talking about an adaptation that Bruce Willis did. It, that was in 2015 on stage. And apparently that didn't go so well. Yeah. 2015 Bruce Willis and Lori Metcalf. Lori actually got a nomination for a Tony for her role, but there's a pretty scathing New York times review about how this adaptation wasn't super successful and they, they kind of cite several reasons why, and we can talk about that later if we want to, but I agree. Like I remember seeing the stage adaptation at a local theater and I thought it was brilliant. It really does lend itself well to stage. You get two people with great performances and this is an amazing uh, set and you can just do a lot with it. It's interesting because I do feel like the book brings um, this so much subtext, right? You're dealing with what's going on in Paul's head and the things that he is remembering and experiencing and the, the torment and really the pain. Honestly, my general experience of being able to describe pain as a writer was inspired by this book. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I don't know if you can read it and not feel physical pain in some way, some kind of sympathetic uh, response. And that absolutely blew me away and still does the way that he describes Paul's injuries and the way that he also describes the receding of the effectiveness of the painkillers and how it just feels like I get that now as an adult when he talks about the tide receding from the yeah. rotted pilings at the ocean and how like they're just sitting there open to the world and how, even though the water and form of the painkillers covers them back up, the pain is still there. Like the pilings are still there. It's just the, the tide coming and going. And I discovered that, you know, having, well, I've had a couple C-sections and other surgeries and, you know, going through some other pain related issues, even now in my middle age years, but it is, um, it's hard to encapsulate that in a, an adaptation, unless you really get a fantastic performance, uh, from the actors. And I do believe to a certain extent that, that James Conn pulled that off, uh, in, in the Rob Reiner adaptation, he, he definitely looked pained. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, did you buy it? Did you, is that aspect of it good for you guys? Do you feel like Paul Sheldon looked like he was in a world of absolute misery? I think when he was moving from like the bed to the chair or to the floor, when he was trying to like move around, like those are the moments that really stick right. When his legs like hit the floor and they're all bruised and swollen and splint splinted together. <laughs> oh God. Right. Okay. Uh, like, first of all, you've got great, great special effects to sell that as well. 
Yes. And like, and you don't have uh, the real misery of this film without being able to yeah, look down and see those legs. There's that. But also, first of all, yeah, to answer you, I think absolutely James Caan uh, was brilliant. Brilliant yeah. in this role. Uh, and it was all about his face. It was those tight shots of the genuine agony mm-hmm. just scrawled and etched and pulled on his face and I, with the sweat coming down. Part of that works. And I, I wanted to mention just sort of James Caan in general being in this film because the brilliant, brilliant casting that I'll never get tired of talking about because here we have somebody who is famous for a few big things about a decade or so earlier and now interested in him is kind of waning and he's still going through the motions and he's kind of clawing for artistic relevance. You tell me if I just described James Conn or Paul Sheldon. I mean, <laughs> then. But also we had never seen, I mean, we've seen James Conn go through journeys and give really great performances before then, but we had never seen him in this kind of raw pain on screen. And certainly for this sustained a period of time, and one writer to another, by the way, I totally get what you're talking about earlier when you said that, like, you know, uh, how he found many ways to describe pain in this book. I mean, it's like the Eskimos having 240 words for snow. There's the endless, endless uh, permutations that he came up with. To explore that, I feel James Kahn equally did that with his performance. It didn't feel like one note over and over. It felt like this crescendo and kind of ups and downs, this sort of opera of pain, the way that the book did. So yeah, I, I, I thought that he was absolutely perfect in this role. And what's wild, he's like number 12 on their list of potential actors for that role. Wow. I wanted to mention too, because you were talking about the Bruce Willis thing on stage. To me, that's why that doesn't work. Because we've been watching Bruce Willis in pain his entire film career. Yeah. So it doesn't hit us. It doesn't shake us. It doesn't chill us the same way. Yeah, maybe have to walk on some shards of glass first. Maybe that would have worked. Seen him make those faces before too many fucking times. Yeah. I think that was a that was one of the huge factors for his performance is that yeah, this is John McClain, right? Like he can't get John McClain down. So the vulnerability isn't there for that role. You never really feel like he's in that much danger. And that was the criticism, I think, for watching Willis in that role in the stage performance. What's funny is Bruce was also actually one of the people for the role of the movie. And like William Hurt was asked twice. I mean, basically all of these leading men, air quotes, Robert Redford, Harrison Ford, Al Pacino, Michael, Michael Douglas, Kevin Klein, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, Mel Gibson, Denzel Washington, (laughs) And Morgan Freeman all you know, turned the role down. At least half of those people on that list, I think I could have done a good job. I absolutely I think so. agree. Although I'm trying to think, I'm trying to imagine Al Pacino. My legs, look at my legs. What have you done to my freaking legs? Oh my God. <laughs> like Robert De Niro would be like, oh, you're going to hurt me? You're going to hurt me? You know, it's just like, it's a very funny, but the, the crazy thing is, Warren Beatty was basically going to be in this movie. That would so, work. That would work. I, I think he yeah. would have worked, but really the reason he's not there, Dick Tracy ran over. Oh, oh. Well, because they had that fire on set. So that that yeah. whole thing, they had to rebuild everything. And that that movie went through. That was a hell of a production. Like Reiner and the, and I didn't get to watch this, but I heard about that he did a pretty good, which Reiner typically does, um, 
director commentary on this movie. And he had, he basically points out a lot of the points where Warren Beatty helped redo the script Oh, and really credits a lot of these changes to Warren. Like he had kind of worked pretty closely with him, but didn't obviously make it into the movie. But I, he's one of them on the list. I could actually see making it work. I totally agree. I think Beatty is one of those characters that knows how to like not be Warren Beatty. Unlike he's not a movie star, I guess I should say. He, he he's famous, but he's not like movie star famous as opposed to like Bruce Willis, right? Bruce Willis just precedes himself. So when we talk about or Pacino or De Niro, but I think it's interesting because James Caan is also from the Godfather, which those guys are in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Khan was the, you know, he was kind of not the, the top tier son, you know, um, of, I mean, of, he wasn't Fredo. Good. No, Lord. God, no. <laughs> I, J- James Khan's death scene in the Godfather just broke my heart. I mean, the first time I ever saw the Godfather, I had already seen misery. So I was already thinking Paul Sheldon in my head, even though I'm looking at a much younger version of Paul Sheldon in the Godfather. It's <laughs> and a much angrier one. Oh my god yeah yeah it's interesting how we carry those imprints right of the first experience we have with the particular actor into some of the other roles i think we do this a lot more maybe when we're younger than we do now like it's easier to separate them out a little more but at the time i was still very much thinking like oh that's paul sheldon because i'm like 13, 14 years old watching The Godfather for the first time, right? I love everything that you guys are saying. And I absolutely love knowing that about the fact that James Caan was not the first choice. Um, Because I honestly just think that everything about him made him the perfect person to play this role. He was just, you know, he just looked like a cool, cocky writer, you know, with the, the picture that is of his, his author photo that's on Annie Wilkes's um, little shrine to him in her <laughs> living room, everything down to it. He just looks like your classic New York cool writer guy. Although I think it's so hilarious that he's writing misery the books, the books of Misery Chastain, the these Victorian romance, like sort of Regency era books. Um, anybody who's watching Bridgerton right now, just imagine them being written by a guy like Paul Sheldon. Well, you know, I <laughs> I, I write those books. So. Oh, well, see, but you're a ghostwriter though, right? Like, so do you have to like um like how does that affect I'm willing to take this go down this rabbit hole with you briefly because I'm very curious about that I think the listeners might be too like switching on those modes off and on and how does that compete with the things that you might rather write for yourself versus what you're writing you know for your career well generally uh I can confess that doing it for a career means that I don't really generally have the time or the inclination to do it for myself anymore right you know and that Sucks to some degree, and it's a little creatively stifling, as naturally it would be, but it's also just sort of, you know, how it shakes down, where this is now what I sit down in front of the computer and do to pay the bills, and I flatter myself that I am good at it, because I always uh, get work, thankfully, not wood. But, well, I, I think that's a good good enough feedback myself, yeah, you know? You know, but um, yeah, it's, uh, as a result, my creativity mostly goes into that and so i'm not really left with a lot at the end of the day to put into uh, concepts or projects of my own do the Uh, do the do the people and i will say women because i think this is largely female audience majority speaking do they know that they're do they think they're reading a female author do you think or do they 
every time. Absolutely. Wow. See, yeah. that's so fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the books are released uh, with these sort of uh, author names that are shared by, you know, about maybe a half dozen people like me who are, you know, cranking these books out. Yeah. And uh, they're never male names as far as I can tell, uh, because it's, it's really part of the mystique. I mean, these uh, quote unquote writers also have Facebook uh, pages and bios and photos and, you know, it's, and it's all just sort of this wonderful pastiche that's been put together for mm-hmm. the audience. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of fun in a way when you think about it, the fact that so much goes into not just, I mean, it's not just, a lot of people think it's a question of somebody slapping their own name on somebody else's work, but it's actually far more complex than that. It's this building of this character for the audience. Yes. Yeah. It is a very collaborative experience. Um, and yeah, it's not, you don't see many prominent male names in the romance world. Like, I think that's one thing that makes Paul Sheldon unique. And even in his world, even in the eighties, I would say his successes in that genre with his name on them is itself kind of a blessing and an anomaly. I don't know that you would see that as much today. I don't know that you would see the name of man's name, Paul Sheldon plastered across this flowery, like romance book. I can tell you that you wouldn't, you absolutely, it doesn't work that way. And there are even, uh, clients who will not hire male writers for this sort of material because they themselves also believe that a man is simply not capable yeah. of you know, uh, doing these kinds of stories and making them appealing to a largely female audience. Well, and, uh, and on the flip yeah. side, in my own personal experience, I, I tried to enter the, the writing realm doing uh, sci-fi horror, um, very male dominated. So if I wanted to really get big in that, I would have probably gone under a pseudonym or something at least to remove the it would have been more of like a neutral pseudonym if not a male one just to get past some of those audience biases that are out there and so it's just it's it's fascinating and I I know that's a bit of a tangent but I think an interesting insight to Stephen King at the time maybe that was part of the whole thing that made Paul Sheldon even more uh, resentful because I feel like of his own success is that he's a dude who got famous writing this stuff. And I think in some ways he, maybe he feels like I shouldn't be famous for doing this kind of writing because this is typically not stuff you find men writing and whether or not you agree with that. I think that is definitely like a, a feeling that's part of that equation that adds to Paul Sheldon's sort of mental state at the beginning of this story as he's learning to sort of come to grips with the situation that he's in and and then of course being forced under duress of the worst kind to write a new sequel to please this woman who is very dangerous who is revealing herself to be more and more dangerous as time goes on well the word we're kind of dancing around here is misogyny (laughs) okay (laughs) yes all right misogynistic character and it goes with his, it comes from, it springs from his resentment toward that he's grown toward his own audience because that's the face that they wear and certainly in his mind, uh, at least. Right. And so I think that that sort of goes with that and definitely ties into your wonderful observation earlier about how uh, swiftly he was trying to run from that with fast cars. Yeah. Uh, and just sort of trying to, overcompensate into his own masculinity and feed into his own mythos of being the, you know, the tough uh, guy, 
<laughs> well, the 20th century male novelist, you know. Right. And, uh, the way that he was talking about taking a road trip at the beginning of the book when he had finished uh, mm. writing that last book. And he's, he's saying after the second or third hit of Dom Perignon, by God, it started to seem almost noble. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the book because it just guys yeah, he's just <laughs> full of himself and hates himself at the same time yeah and, and again you know needs his audience and hates his audience at the same time oh it's it's really a very complex mindset and I think it it is one of those things that I absolutely do not want to say like oh well you know if you're a writer you'll understand I honestly feel like anybody who's in any sort of creative mindset of any kind where you are dealing with the commerce side of things can definitely like find that intersection is very messy for a multitude of reasons. And I think King kind of like nailed a number of the reasons why it is such a clusterfuck. Um, Commerce and also fame and also expectation. Yeah. Sort of the, the drain of that to a certain degree. And I wanted to mention, by the way, that like, yeah, you know, for probably the rest of this program, what you're going to hear a lot of, and rightfully so, is Kel, you know, waving the Annie Wilkes flag. <laughs> and, I under, and I just want to say right off uh, the bat that I, I understand that completely. And I don't mean to be flip about it because I know Kel so well and for so long. And I know how passionate she is about books and literature and, you know, all of that and, and how personal it can be. Well, I mean, that Annie is, if anything has proven for anybody that thinks that quote unquote toxic fandom is a new thing or that it's an internet thing only, um, you know, clearly, clearly they have never met the likes of say Mark David Chapman, who created (laughs) his own fantasy in his own head based on a book that he, you know, read and just let that delusion kind of like bloom and become something else. This idea, it's a newer term that we're seeing around. And I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, the parasocial relationship, which is a famous person that people get attached to and form a, their own personal relationship with it exists largely in their own head and they start to inject their own biases and opinions into the decisions that these celebrities make in their personal lives and become very affected by them and they just have a very strong opinion and it's like you don't know this person well see that's (laughs) just it Allison and I think that you and I probably have this in common to a certain degree is that we're coming at it uh and not just as readers but also from the other side as creators of content (laughs) Yeah. And the thing about that is that, again, it's one thing to read Misery when you're so much younger, that the idea of fans or consumers or people who are reading and judging your work uh, and maybe loving it is a very abstract one and a very pleasant one to a certain degree. Oh, fame. That's so cool. Who wouldn't want that? Right. That's nifty. People who, you know, consume your work and, and love it and can't wait for more. Sounds great. As an adult and somebody who actually then yeah, makes the transition and does it professionally. It's a different thing to, and it's a weird thing to be able to go to Amazon and mm-hmm. look at the reviews and read them of the work that we've done. And I do, and I imagine you probably do as well. And the nature of those reviews can run the gamut from things that are very flattering and touching and very cool. And it's great that they enjoy you know, the work that we've done to things that are genuinely weird and kind of disjointed. And you're like, I guess that's flattering. I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> and then there are the times when certain people 
you know, will invariably take your work too personally. Oh, and very much. It's, it's a bit of a scary concept to stare that in the face and know that even if they don't know who you are and they'll never meet you, they're talking about you. They're talking about what you've put on the page and how they've reacted. And sometimes it's scary and there's kind of a psychological weight that goes to it that even uh, apart from fame, because again, that's the great thing about me. I'll never get famous and I don't want to for reasons very much like this, you know, right? the reality of that, and especially in a world with Twitter and every other social media, the reality of fame has grown even uh, more darker and more twisted than it was when misery came out. Oh, and really when they're on social media, it makes you feel even more like you're personally connected when you can see, like, say, I was mentioning, I think on Twitter the other day, I was watching Josh Brolin on an episode of Hot Ones, which is a, you know, show on YouTube where, it's a famous people eating chicken wings and, and being interviewed and they get some yeah. of lace spicy as it goes. It's a great show. But, um, yeah. uh, and I was mentioning like, Oh, Josh Brolin seems like a cool guy. And his Instagram is very personal and very like open. He makes you really do feel like you're one of his buddies, you know, the way he talks about his life and his everyday life with his wife and his kid. And, and it's just, it feels like you're part of it, but at the same time, it's like, he doesn't know me. He'll never know me. And I don't know him. I only know what I'm seeing here. And, but at the same time, if you were really into Josh Brolin, like his work, if you were feeling like very attached to his portrayals of a certain character of Thanos, for instance, or whatever, you know, you could start to feel like if Josh Brolin made a choice you didn't like, then Josh Brolin goes from being friend to enemy, like at the drop of a hat. And it's like, Oh, you're a dead to me, Josh Brolin. Or if I stumbled upon you, Josh Brolin, in a snowstorm after you had a car wreck, well, I will take you into my house and keep you prisoner for a year and a half while I make you do whatever the fuck I want to do. Um, there's a line there, but I totally get it. And and Kelly, we are bookish, introverted kind of people. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, yeah. That we have a quorum here of yeah. kind of introverted folks doing. Sure. We're making a podcast for God's sake, you know, <laughs> like we're, we're making three podcasts. We are. Yeah. We are podcasters. <laughs> we are internet people. We are, um, we go to work, we come home. We like to read our books, watch our movies. And you know, we're not out there living it up in Rio de Janeiro and partying, you know, 24 seven and doing the extroverted life pandemic, notwithstanding. Um, I would think if there was no pandemic, us four would be more or less doing the same shit. Um, oh, me for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think there is something to be said about like Annie, I'd love to get into her brain a little bit more because she is this woman living all by herself in this very rural Colorado town. She's got this tiny little farm. She's kind of just subsisting out there. And what does she have time to do? Cause at that time there's no internet. There's no, there's nothing but some maybe TV and radio that maybe she won't be able to get a signal when the weather's bad. So she's just reading. She's, she has her books. They're Paul Sheldon's books. And I'll tell you as, and you can relate to this too. I bet that for me growing up, Stephen King books were literally my best friends. They were probably my only friends between the ages of 11 and 15 or 16, especially, uh, they got me through the worst part of middle school and the awkwardness of early high school. And I wrote letters to Stephen King. 
I even got one back uh, at, a, at the time Needful Things was coming out. I got a bookmark and a, and a letter, you know, and it was like the coolest thing ever. And I felt like, oh my God, Stephen King knows who I am. He read something I wrote and I've never met, met Stephen King. And I still have this dream one day that maybe he'll blurb something I write, but who doesn't dream that as an author? Um, I've met Joe Hill, his son at a book signing, great guy. But I feel like on a personal level, like about Stephen King, probably in a lot of ways, the way that Annie felt about Paul, which is like, I am alone in this world and your words are carrying me through and across a wide chasm of loneliness, you know? And yeah, that's why he was speaking to you with this book, Alice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And not to be unkind. But so much of this is is about him, you know, trying to have more than just the the usual one-sided right. uh, with the audience and speaking back to them and saying yes and thank you. And I understand that importance mm-hmm. because if he could if he didn't, he wouldn't be able to write Annie Wilkes as well as he did. But also pointing out uh, that it's a horrible responsibility mm-hmm. to put that onto somebody who you've never met and who's never met you, but you know, to sort of put that on their shoulders it can be a terrible weight and it piles up with the fandom i mean i will say then what separated me then is if he had killed the character of my favorite series of all time then i would be sad but then i just go and start reading the first book over and over again you know what i mean like i just start the series over well, which is what i did yeah this is an exaggeration of that. yeah right it's what i did with the dark tower but you know there are people i mean there are those people out there that like really take it personally and so i'm fascinated with like what flips that switch in people because we know it exists we've seen it exist we've seen the results of that where creative decisions made by people just trying to give people a good time end up getting them slews of death threats and ruining their careers uh hi ryan johnson after finishing the last jedi i hate to bring that up even like for the fear of the trolls that that might summon but i mean that is another example of like you took my precious thing and did something different with it. Oh my God, my world is over. That to me is, God, that's horrific. And so if anything, what I'm trying to do here is illustrate that what King wrote with misery in 1987 or in the mid eighties, when he was writing this thing is it's timeless in in the worst kind of way. Uh, because we're seeing it probably a little more amplified now. Well, even even going back before then, and he mentions this to a certain degree in the book, along with some other examples, which I love. But even going back to uh, Victorian times, you know, when Arthur Conan Doyle killed Sherlock Holmes, people went into mourning. And uh, in re- it, it, bizarrely, but true, you know, and he went back and did the return of Sherlock Holmes because, I don't know, we've got four people on this podcast. Could anyone here name... Two more Arthur Conan Doyle books off the top of their head. God, no, no. Nope. <laughs> so, I mean, you can feel it when he comes back to the character and he's doing that first story and he's telling Holmes's tale of how he actually, no, against all odds, survived falling off a cliff. You can tell that he's just, I mean, there's an internal weird. Oh, wait. So he pulled yeah. a rocket man? Like (laughs) didn't get out of the car. And so now Paul Sheldon has to do that same thing and make it sound convincing. And the whole thing in the novel where it was the bee sting and she had been buried alive. It's the most far-fetched horse shit. 
but it's all it, it, you know she loves it and she'll she'll accept it as long as it's not a cheat well remember his first his first attempt was a cheat yeah and she first was attempt. not happy yeah but his beasting nonsense that's far-fetched and comes from no it totally unbelievable no that still plays by the rules in the mind of this reader and a lot of readers oh my god i love this so much um it, it's if anything i as we dissect this and we just talk about the the reason that this book and this story in general continues to matter uh in 2022 the way that it did when king wrote it back in you know the mid 80s is it's so great um and i want to talk about more of the differences between the book and the movie because i do i I hate to do that because i don't want to diminish the accomplishment of the film I do want to say like the film is fantastic. I even love everything about the washed out color palette of the film. Uh, when, when you see that first shot of Paul in the bedroom and Annie introducing herself in that bedroom, it looks like somebody just bleached the hell out of it. It is just starkly like without color. And I love that. It feels very intentional. It feels very much like Paul is in this, purgatory and we the viewer aren't aware yet that he's in danger because the movie takes a little bit of time for paul to kind of really realize the shit he's in whereas i think the book brings out a little bit closer like he knows kind of right away that something ain't right you know there's always like it's like in the middle whereas the movie like once she sets his manuscript on fire in the barbecue um once she makes him burn his his cock-a-duty cuss word book um and uh you know nearly sets the room on fire with the shards of flying burning paper we already know by that point he's starting to get this sense and then there was also the scene where she yelled at him and when she was feeding him soup and he's trying to explain to her you know oh that came first actually when she yelled at him like look what you made me do uh his first inkling that something is terribly yeah i think we really need to talk about the violence levels. That's the starkest difference. I don't know offhand, and I meant to look it up, but maybe the three of you, one of the three of you know, is this a PG-13? Uh, yeah, I don't it's, an, it's an R. Okay. Well, then the book is like a hard R. Like there are things in the book that happened that if they were in the movie, I don't think anybody would have, anybody but maybe us three sickos or four sickos would have gone and seen well, and, and I mean, loved it. It, it, it. It's sort of what makes the film kind of a cheat in terms of a horror. It's not really a horror so much as it's more a really intense psychological thriller, whereas the book is definitely horror. Well, we should talk about the most infamous scene from the movie, which I think we know is the sledgehammer. Do we all agree? Like that, that's the one, right? That's in the, anytime you mention any Wilkes, there's a sledgehammer. I mean, she's a meme at this point, but in the book, there ain't no sledgehammer. It's a friggin' ax. Oh yeah. And she cuts Paul's foot off. So, (laughs) and then she cauterizes it, the uh, stump with a, blowtorch the burns omatic blowtorch yes 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 and i was not prepared for this in fact since i'd already seen the movie when i read the book i was waiting for that sledgehammer scene so when she comes in there with that axe i little middle school Allie was freaking out a little bit because i'm like wait 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 if she cuts off his foot 
then he'll never be able to walk. Not only dealing with the repercussions of having an amputation, which is just horrifying to think of. I mean, breaking the ankle is a visual like thing that sight of the sledgehammer hitting the ankle and the foot just swinging like to this day when I watched it the other night I was like that's still really well done do you know how they did it no no do tell okay so a while back and I, I say a while back like this is probably a solid 15 years ago or more every year around Halloween um the channel Bravo had the 20 scariest movie moments or whatever and they would show different segments and that was one of them and then they would talk to people um, sometimes people involved to talk about how it happened or sometimes just people who love that movie and they talked to somebody from misery I it definitely wasn't James Caan I don't think it was Rob Reiner or Kathy Bates either but what they did was they had um, a sock full of jello and just you know hit it and it just Oh, I love that. I love that. Just like I love knowing as a side note, how they made the exploding head from scanners, um, where they just had a shotgun and they had like this fake head filled with all kinds of entrails. And, and they had just someone back there that just pulled the trigger on the gun and blew the fake head. Oh, I love stuff like that. That's, that's a whole other season of this show, to be honest, like some of those great special effects, visceral moments like that, because I could imagine that's really what it would look like if yeah. you broke someone's ankle that way, it would look like a sock full of jello, just season four creepy tidbits. Oh, I absolutely love that. Um, I, think I once knew a stripper named creepy tidbits. Um, <laughs> no, and as for the, uh, the effect on the ankle i'd actually heard a different story i heard that it was just that james Conn was really into some guys for like money from gambling so they, <laughs> they agreed to have him come on the set just settle it that way you know, get, uh, get well, a two, it's a two for one i like yeah. that but i'll tell you this though like uh, because like you i did watch the movie before i read the book and i was very very shocked by the whole axe and burns thing in the book and yeah. it's ghastly Honestly, I think I prefer the sledgehammer on screen because I think yeah. it's something more stark, more chilling, less expected. I mean, axes hacking off limbs, we've seen that. But the whole buildup to it with her putting the block between his ankles, telling him the whole thing about the Kimberly diamond mines and, you know, just hefting, just hefting the sledgehammer, drawing the moment out and then that lifting it and that beatific smile I love you, Paul. The whole sequence gets to you in a way that just, and she chopped his thing off with it. Acts, it's not as inventive. It's not as novel an approach. And I feel like it might have cheapened it a little bit, even just seeing like any kind of blood spray or spatter, it would have taken it to, again, something that, you know, a filmmaker that was a smutty little boy would have harkened <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back to a previous episode. But no, I, I agree. I feel like that is a great uh, demonstration, I think, of when you can adapt something for screen and change it, it for the better in some ways. Because I, I definitely agree with you. I think seeing that on the screen would have changed the tenor of the movie and it wouldn't have played as effectively. And it also would have probably rendered it to a more niche film um the exactly less approachable to audiences that aren't horror yeah and and i think that's also why again some of the other gorier moments we don't see in the film like for instance 
Um, this I always found fascinating in my multiple rereads of the book when she cuts off his thumb yeah. with an electric knife. It's almost mentioned as an aside. Yes. And not only did she cut off his thumb, she put it on a birthday cake exactly, and presented it to him and sung the happy birthday song <laughs> as she was bringing the cake into the room. His thumb is plopped in the middle of it like a birthday candle. I have a love-hate relationship with that because on the one hand, it is such a ghoulish scene. And as you said, so weirdly detached in the writing of it. And I particularly remember this. He, Stephen King is great with the little details that yes. are almost like that thing that jumps out at you that is so small that your brain couldn't have made it up and you know you're not dreaming. Kind of right. And right. In this, it was the fact that he was looking at the thumb, looking at the thumbnail, Think about that ragged edge that he himself had chewed off of his thumbnail, and now it's on top of a birthday cake. Like, the whole thing. But on the flip side, I also felt like he's a writer. You're going to take off one of his fingers? That doesn't seem like a good idea. No, no. And, and the way it was presented almost, I remember having to reread that part of the book. It felt like a dream sequence. I'm like, there's no way she actually cut off his thumb. Yeah. How's he going to use a typewriter that's already missing two letters in addition to everything else, right? I mean, she's filling in the letters for him. It's not like she's making him do it. Oh, that's so sweet of her. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's true. Could you imagine having to play like the worst Wordle game of your life, trying to fill in these missing letters in this manuscript? <laughs> and especially once he loses the E. I mean, that's the most common vowel in the American or in the English language. Well, and one other thing about the sledgehammer scene too, is you get a second bite at the apple, right? She does it twice. So there's this real tension, like sure, cutting off of, uh, foot and blow torching it is horrifying but the fact that you know she's like well you know halfway there only one more to go like it's just there's something really terrifying about the fact like oh it's not done yet and what's interesting too is a lot of people did not sign on to this movie because of the violence in it because of the they didn't want to be involved like bet midler was gonna mm -hmm. play annie wilkes oh that Midler, like the really like, no. but she did not like that violent aspect. And this is still the toned down violence from, from with, I, I would say it is certainly more violent to hack someone's foot off, especially if you see the blood and all that stuff. But this one's almost more suspenseful and terrifying. And it's the, the long haul of the, the two for one, so to speak. And what was really interesting too, is there was a lot of discussion about whether or not they do the ax scene, like on the set, there was a lot of controversy and I guess back and forth on whether or not they even do it. And ultimately ended up going with the sledgehammer scene versus the ax scene. Again, I think just because of the goriness of it. I'm still reading from Bette Midler. I'm so I was like, why not just try to cast Streisand while you're at it? <laughs> I, mean, well, I was going to say, is Bette Midler kind of a low rent Streisand? Am I going to get like canceled for saying that? I mean, yeah. Well, uh, funnily enough, Barbara Streisand was also considered for the role. So no, don't tell me that. <laughs> In addition to Roseanne Barr, Rosie O'Donnell, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Vicki Lawrence. It was a Jessica what? Lang. It was a very oh, interesting. Honestly, I could see Jessica choice. Lang. Oh my oh, God. God. Sure. This was the thing about that though. And, and you were, again, going back to the uh, Bruce Willis, Laurie Metcalf thing. Like another reason that that doesn't work again, it's because of casting. Yeah. yeah. Like, Annie Wilkes, the reason that she works so well here is because at that time, Kathy Bates was a wild card. No one in the audience knew her. No one knew what she was capable of on screen. So she was able to charm us with one scene and then immediately terrify us a moment later. 
in yes. a way that like Jessica Lange had been around. She couldn't do that. Or like Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, good grief. The, the beauty of Kathy Bates is how she looks in the early scenes of the film. And also, honestly, in the scenes where they're just like, where things aren't violent, where they're not yeah you know amping up she looks like a preacher's wife she looks like just this plain decent for lack of a better word woman that you would honestly i see women like her in my job my day job every single day and never give them a second glance it's exactly that's why it works it's incredible and the way that she turned the clouds that enter her vision it's like storm clouds like covering the sun and she becomes Annie. And it is brilliant in many ways. Now in the book, another thing that she does, and this actually occurred to me in maybe uh, Josh or Kelly, you can remind me. I think it's later in the book. I think it's after she cuts his foot off. I could be wrong, but didn't she bring a rat into the room that she had found like in the attic and she starts squeezing it and then yes. like her fingers go into it and then she licks yeah. the blood yeah and throws the rat into the corner <laughs> i mean the moments does, that yeah. capture her mental illness as that book are beautifully haunting and the way that he talked about how she would come unplugged like a vacuum cleaner and just sort of still and mm. stare at nothing and then just come right back as though only a second had passed oh god and that deep deep depression like she also did a thing in the book where she would leave him alone for a long period of time uh, place. Yeah. yeah she would go to her laughing place and i think the second time that she did it she was gone for a couple weeks and he was locked she left him with some food and some water because the first time she left him she was just pissed off and that was i think that was like like a few hours even she didn't leave him any medicine she didn't leave him anything that was the paper incident and she's gone for a while when she goes in and replaces that and I, but then when she leaves him again yeah she leaves him for a long time and i think that's when he leaves the room finally and starts exploring like the and finds the scrapbook and learns a little more at that point about her background which i think is one of those things that i guess we should explore a little bit because annie has a past she isn't just a devoted fan. She isn't just a depressed woman living alone with some stability issues. She's, well, she's a bit of a serial killer in a sense when she was a nurse in Boulder or Denver, I think it was for years she worked in pediatrics and well, a lot of babies died under her care. And I think she also killed her father, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Well, it was her father or her stepfather. I don't remember. Um, But one of those, and I feel like a classmate too yes yeah or like maybe a nursing, like a roommate or something yeah like yeah. From, from college yeah, yeah yeah I think there was a college roommate situation and of course she collects newspaper clippings of her exploits and puts that's them the one this. thing I don't like yeah 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 and the classic serial killer scrapbook exposition trick which unfortunately at that time like King had done a handful of times already he like, had and he he you know. kind of relies on that sort of epistolary device in a number of his works. Yeah, I agree. And for her, it feels a little unearned. Like she wouldn't have the wherewithal to understand that or to, you know, she's kind of in this own mental world of her own. So her collecting those things does seem a little out of character. 
Yeah. Seems a little yeah. too anal and too, as you said, organized for somebody else. I would agree with you. I feel like the decision to put the scrapbook in almost felt like something suggested by an editor. And I say this in the sense of somebody who's written a character that is kind of psycho and having a team of editors on me to be like, can we just provide a little more background subtext, a little extra something or other? I think it would have been a lot scarier not to know, honestly. I completely agree with you. I don't think we need it. I don't think it, it makes her scarier that we know, I guess, in the sense like, oh, she killed babies. So she's automatically going to be, well, she's dangerous enough. She's already cut his goddamn foot off. She's already (laughs) holding him captive. She's already done all these things. And oh, in addition to that, there's a sheriff that comes and finally gets smart enough to start sniffing around and, you know, linking her possibly to knowing something about what happened to Paul. And what does she do? She stabs him in the back and then runs over him with her riding lawnmower, which is probably for me reading this, the scariest moment in the book, because at that point, Paul had more or less started to resign himself to the fact that he's he's at his lowest point i think i think he'd even lost his thumb already at that point or maybe that came after i think that was the punishment that she gave him after he did that i could be wrong it's again it's been a while since i've read it so i could be forgetting those little minute details but he sees the cop come out and something overcame him where he picked up an ashtray and throws it through the window and she's out there tending her yard and Paul screams to the sheriff, I'm here, I'm here, help me. Oh my God, oh my God. And you think there's like, oh, finally, somebody knows he's here. And then not even a second later, he's the the sheriff is dead. And it's just, you finally have that bit of like heart pumping, like, oh my God, oh my God. Like finally somebody's found him. And then all that hope is just gone. It's stripped away completely. And then I think that's when we hit the really low point for Paul, the reader, everybody. Like we've been going through the motions here. We've been watching him write this book and battle every day of living in these conditions and, and, you know, becoming in fact, a drug addict as he's living here because he is addicted to these painkillers, by the way. So that's a whole other aspect of of Paul's captivity is he is becoming an addict uh living with Annie and after that sheriff is murdered and he's you know she disposes of the body oh that's right I think that's when she leaves him alone for quite a while because she has to go dispose of the body and he's she's gone for a long time and it's almost like part I got to get rid of this body plus I'm punishing you but isn't the low point even worse in the novel because as I understand, part of the issue too is it's not just him trying to stay alive with this crazed captor, but also he's really wrestling with his inner demons more in the book than I think he does in the movie. You don't really get a sense in the movie he has any inner demons. It's really more of him just trying to survive this nightmare that he's in. So it's almost like in the story, the book he's writing psychologically helps him stay sane and grounded and- get through it. And I think they even compare, he compares himself in the novel to Scheherazade. Like I'm telling a tale each day to keep myself alive, which I thought was really cool. And I almost wanted that alliteration in the movie, but it's obviously not there, but I thought that was a a great 
analogy to his circumstance. Like <laughs> I'm captive. And if I just keep telling this story, I live another day. I love, and honestly, that was another thing that went over my head at age 11. I was not familiar with Scheherazade. <laughs> Sure. Was like that came later on. Uh, so that was one of those, again, like, oh, as a young reader, some of these references just like whoop, right over my head. Um, but absolutely, that is so powerful. And again, I think that's King coming back to make the story a bit more interesting because he discovered that as he was going along writing this for himself, that he was finding and exploring the redemptive power of writing for himself as he was telling the story. Cause that was not really the plan. when he set out, he said, I think in on writing, I think he mentioned that he just had this picture of this woman who ended up being Annie Wilkes, who takes this writer captive and forces him to write a book. And then she binds it with his skin after <laughs> she murders him or lets the pig eat him or whatever. Um, yeah. And then as he was writing the book, he's like, no, there's, there's a lot more going on. King is a very famous pantser as they call them <laughs> in the, uh, in the writing world. you have writers that, that pre-plan and outline and, and are very like, you know, they're a little more regimented. I am now one of those. I used to be more of a fly by the seat of my pants author, but then I wasn't finishing anything. So, so I got a lot better at finishing projects when I was a bit more disciplined with my planning. So not to say that if you're an outliner that you can't have these discoveries and change course, but King basically just had an image in his mind of this woman and the story of misery was just kind of born from that. And that sort of like arc of finding the power of writing and, and why he does it is such an important undertone to this. So yeah, that is such an important layer to the story. And, and also I think for, again, anybody who does honestly anything, if you find yourself disillusioned, because I think that's really what this, we could boil this concept down so easily to being like, if you're feeling disillusioned with what you do, if you're feeling burnout <laughs> of any kind, uh, I don't know, a tale for trying to find that spark again. Let's hope you don't need to be kidnapped and tortured within an inch of your life uh, to rediscover it. But um, I was going to say, isn't this just a really extreme version of NaNoWriMo? Is that really what he went through? <laughs> you know, it's funny to hear you guys talk about it that way. I, again, I've read the book a lot of times. I've never found it to be redemptive uh, in the way that you're discussing it, because to me, it's always been about absolutely the scarred side of that coin instead, which is why, you know, Chris, you were talking about the uh, excerpts from the misery book that he is in the process of writing and how we get to see those throughout in a way that like, you don't get to see it on the screen or on the stage, but in the novel form, we get to be inside of his head and see the moment-to-moment -moment nightmare of trying to make the words happen and using whatever the hell you happen to be going through in that moment. Right. Because, because it's what you have. And if you're sitting in a room and you're trying to come up with something and you're exhausted because you've been in front of the computer for 12 hours straight or more, your hands are hurting, you have 40 more K to go or whatever to finish the thing. Uh, well, what do you write? Okay, the hero's hilt of his sword was heavy in his numb fingers as he limped right. across the bat. You put it in because what else are you going to do with it? Or if you're feeling a uh, heartbreak or loneliness or tedium, or you just, 
you just have to put it into whatever framework you're already working with. And sometimes it's a slog and sometimes it's a horror. And sometimes you get those inspired moments of brilliance from it that like you hope sort of even elevates what you're doing or takes you out of it for that little moment. And you think, ah, yeah, bend over Hemingway. I'm the man, you know? And <laughs> those then you are great moments. You're still shackled to your writing desk. And so you've got to put your shoulder back to it. But for that little second, you felt like a god. All these things come through in these excerpts that King put in to the book, where we get to travel that road with them in a way that's so free associative, you know? It's so cool. Uh, and I will say, like, as a young reader, I actually skipped those uh, those book within a book parts because I oh, didn't. Wow. I was 11. I didn't get it, man. I was just like, Oh, let's get back to the part with Paul and Annie. And I will say like, I did that in a few King books when I was young, I did it with uh, the Tommy knockers with the uh, town history stuff. Like when he was talking about the history of the town in which the UFO came it, I will say I redeemed myself in both aspects, reading them as adults. I had the patience and the wherewithal to, you know, read it all and Damn, I'm glad I did. Although I will say it's interesting that those are parts that I skipped as a kid and still love the story. It didn't affect the outcome. It didn't, you know, but oh my God, if you read those things, those extra layers really do add so much more to that internal conflict. Yeah, the way he envisions her as a tribal God image. And, yes. You know, sort of like incorporates <laughs> her racism to a certain degree in these like jungle guana tribal tropes that he's writing, which he knows his readers would eat the fuck up if they had a chance to. Oh, I know. <laughs> and isn't that great? That's the other thing, too. I should mention, like, in talk, you know, talking about the book versus the movie. Eventually, Paul does finish the book. And of course, it's leading up to what's going to happen when Paul finishes this book. Annie knows that she can't let him go at this point. He's been gone too long. Um, she'll never be able to like clear suspicion from herself because we have a dead sheriff. The walls are closing in, essentially. And so she concocts a sort of murder-suicide situation. Kill both of herself and him. And, and uh, you know, that'll be that. In her eyes, he's writing this book just for her. So she starts to see it as more like he's doing this for me. It's not about anything else. While Paul, in the movie, we see, you know, he stages this whole thing where they set up this whole dinner to celebrate the completion of the book. She's very outright with him saying that, you know, we'll do this little celebration and then we're going to both die. And that's that. Well, Paul has other plans up his sleeve because during his whole writing of this book, he finds his strength again. And I think that's really like, he wants to survive. He wants to get out of here. He's been, you know, lifting this heavy old typewriter over his head, trying to build his strength up. And there, there's this sense of like, I think if he didn't feel reinvigorated by his art, he would have been like, okay, sure. You know, put a bullet in me. Let's end this thing once and for all. Um, which I think if, if she had presented that option to him at any point, after she ran over that cop with her lawnmower, uh, we have a very different story, of course. But what does he do? She sets up this dinner and she goes out of the room. He secreted away a, a thing of lighter fluid from the basement, from the same barbecue that she burned his other book on because she hid him down in the basement because there are other cops sniffing around at this point the, about the, the missing cop. And so that's another reason why the walls are closing in. You know, she hides him in the basement 
while they're searching around, he secrets the lighter fluid away. And then of course she brings him his Dom Perignon and a cigarette with a single match. Cause that's part of his ritual of finishing a book. And what does he do? He places the manuscript on the floor, douses it in lighter fluid. And when she comes back in, he sets it on fire. Oh, now, oh wait, no. First he tortures her by telling her that every question she's had this whole series is in that last chapter. Like, oh, you want to know who her dad is? It's right here. You want to know who she's going to end up with? It's right here. Everything you want to know is right here. It works because not only has he just sort of found his groove again as a writer, but he has come to understand the delicate inner workings of the mind of this specific kind of fan. Yes. From being face-to-face and from having to, again, as you said, for his own survival, figure out in a way that he's never had to before as he's just sort of felt like he's chumming the waters with his own content. Now he has to really, really understand the kind of person who consumes it so that he can use that and exploit that to his advantage. And he does. But that, I think, is what fundamentally might have changed him in his approach more than anything else in this whole scenario. That's beautifully said by the way, like both of you, like, I love that because you're absolutely right. And I, I love that both he figured her out and it took my God, how much hell did he have to go through (laughs) to get to that point? But when he lays that out to her in those last moments, and I think he does, this is book and movie are running parallel here at this point because she hadn't read the last chapter yet. That's right. And yeah, she's, he sets the book on fire. And she, of course, predictably dives after it to try to put it out. And then they have their big fight scene. And again, book and movie parallel here. Um, Things differ a little bit in the the book with Annie's actual death, because in the movie, they condensed it down, understandably so. On the screen, you absolutely need to see the enemy or the villain die or be dispatched, right? If you're one of like a closed story. And so that happens uh, whenever, you know, she hits her head on the typewriter after Paul pushes her away. Of course, we get to see him shoving the burning book down her throat, which is described so beautifully in the story. Paul is both cooking his own flesh and Annie's as he's shoving this burning book down her gullet. It's not Um, subtle, is it? (laughs) No, it is not. It is not. No, it is honestly... uh, one of the more visceral moments in fact that i've remembered that scene as well as i do and after having not read the book in a number of years and of course the way he talks about her like coughing and choking on the thing as she's still coming after him and her throat is all just like blown out and swollen and her face is black with both the char of the burnt book and the lack of oxygen and yet she's still coming bro and and then of course in the movie you know she falls and hits her head on the typewriter we think she's dead of course she's not because classic horror movie trope right uh then surprise she leaps on him as he's crawling away he finds a a little doorstop in the shape of a pig (laughs) holding the door open which is poetic in its own right he grabs it, bashes her in the skull. She's dead. In the movie, oh, I'm sorry, in the book, she disappears. Like, I, oh, he locks her in the bedroom and she's like banging to get out. Eventually, they just sort of like 
find her dead out in the barn. That's never like shown, which I think is like kind of like a, I hate to say this. I might actually be harping on this a bit throughout this season is sometimes King pulls his punches a little bit when it comes to like a, an ultimate moment for uh, a character, like a bad guy to really be dispatched. Um, It's almost like, I don't know why he displaced that moment the way that he did. Like Paul just gets out and, you know, he gets rescued. And then we learn later in sort of like an epilogue kind of situation or the last chapter after Paul's sort of gone back to his life that, oh yeah, they found her out in the barn dead after she tried to go out there to get what they presume was a chainsaw to like finish the job. And then she would already had a bad head injury and she just died out there. It was a little like, I don't know. Did you feel that was anticlimactic or do you feel like, I guess that was the right ending for Annie, like that we don't really get to see how she dies. And I don't know. <laughs> I think, for me personally, I like it because I think that the chainsaw sells it. I think yeah. that, it's just a, that that wonderful sort of absence of a, something more than a presence of something like use of negative space narratively mm. where we didn't need to see it. We just need to know that that was what she was going out there to get. And that it could have been so much fucking worse. It <laughs> feels like that's what would have happened. Ball. Yeah. It feels like that's what would have happened in real life. And, and so I guess like, again, like he loves to sort of use that, that truth of things and not necessarily going for the cinematic ending. He's going for the, the real ending, which is usually not beautiful king takes a lot of shit for his endings in general and i'll talk about that a lot again throughout the season and i'm prepared to defend king a little bit on his endings i think i feel like that's sort of one of those things that's been thrown into the popular culture he's also become so known for his bad endings that they make jokes about it they did it in the it movie part two right chris wasn't it like in king's cameo (laughs) Uh, I can't remember exactly how they make a joke of it, but he definitely, yeah, there's a little nod to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really funny because, oh, that's right. William Dembro, who is a writer, horror writer and uh, as an adult in in stories, right? right? Like he, yeah. And doesn't King say like, I didn't like the ending or something like that. Yeah. It was like, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like, oh, his endings are terrible or something. So that was like a running joke, like through it. So, um, but anyway, I, I feel you make a really good point, Josh, about it fills in that negative space. I really like the sound of that. And I feel like there is that he wasn't going for the bombastic, like we see her die, like in this moment. I think that's something that Hollywood sometimes or often requires. Like we need to see that um, in order to sort of like close the loop. But in the book, that's what happens. So there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. I mean, Annie, don't get out of this alive either way. Yeah. And I think what's going on here too, is like the movie and the book shouldn't be the same. They're different mediums trying to tell stories in a different way. So in some ways they're almost perfect for those different mediums, because like if you are watching a movie and someone doesn't die on screen, the number one rule is I need to see a body or it's it's not true. Right. An off screen death is not an earned death in cinema typically. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to agree with that. I feel like each ending was probably correct for the medium and for the, uh, the story as it was presented. And what's really interesting too, is they had apparently shot the scene where Wilkes runs over the cop with the lawnmower. Oh, that was allegedly shot. And Reiner decided, I don't want to 
include this scene because he thought the audiences would either find it too over the top or might burst into laughter. Like it was almost, he didn't want the comedy of that. So I would kind of kill to see that cut of it. But I think in that case, it was the right choice because when you're reading, you're in the grips of it. But if you watch a movie, I could see an audience kind of, even if it's a nervous laughter, laughing. And that's not the effect you want in a movie. Yeah. So it makes sense. What is the actor also who played? Oh, I can't remember. He was a freaking legend in his own right. The guy who played the the sheriff. In the, Richard Farnsworth. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Again, plus the comical absurdity of it, no matter how dark, which King has a knack for. I think there's a lot of that throughout a lot of his books where it just doesn't play as well on screen because it's just so over the top that it just takes people out of it when they're seeing it in front of their eyes as opposed to inside their head. Also the thing about Farnsworth even being in this film, I mean, on the one hand, like he's adorable, obviously, and he's a really great actor and you just want to reach into the TV and you know, pinch his cheeks, you know, kind of a thing, but he shouldn't be here. And it's for the reason that, you know, you uh, used the word frequently at the beginning of this broadcast, uh, claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. We, shouldn't leave that house during the course of the film. And I I don't like the fact that over the course of the film, we keep cutting to this quirky old law enforcement couple and they're on the case. <laughs> and it's like, it just pops the balloon of the tension in a way that really doesn't serve this film at all. I think that, you know, we should have stayed in that room in that house with Paul Sheldon and, you know, not had that little bit of light tension and also not gotten to know the sheriff because that's not important. Right. I think it makes more sense in the book to just have this guy show up and seem to be the answer to his prayers and not know, you know, we don't know. We don't have to know his personality or his wife or anything like that to grasp the random senseless horror of this guy showing up to save the day and getting whacked immediately. And, you know, I, I, I feel like the, film did not serve that purpose. Oh, I think you're, you're absolutely right in terms of the not cutting away and and bringing that in. And I think that illustrates the very big difference between like suspense and thriller. When you're building that suspense, whenever you, you as the observer have the same knowledge as the main character and you're learning it as they go, it is automatically in its own way, a lot more gut-wrenching when you don't have that outside knowledge versus when you, the viewer, not to say it isn't thrilling and good. I'm not making a value judgment here as such to harken back to like Hitchcock who in North by Northwest is a, is a classic example. Cary Grant's character, we're learning everything about what's happening to him as it goes. We're not getting scenes you know, that are giving us details from the villains or anything like that. We just know this guy's life is falling apart that he's been framed and he's being chased by all these people straight up down to like a, a, a plane chasing him across a, a cornfield. You know, we don't know what's going on. And this whole story feels larger than life because we're only seeing it through his viewpoint. That is a unique form of, a, of thrill uh, that is a hard to pull off for a long time, you know, for a big piece and be when it works. Oh my God. Is it ever uh, just a, a unique experience? Uh, there's another one, uh, another movie I'll bring up to the game uh, with Michael uh, Douglas. Oh, 
perfect which again fincher cribs a good bit from hitchcock so honestly if you want these style of things where you learn things as the main character learns them so you can be as bewildered and terrified as they are in the moment uh definitely check out that movie and anything um, honestly almost anything by hitchcock but versus yeah cutting out to that external thing so you think oh yeah well eventually the cop's going to show up there because they keep showing the cop. So he's going to be okay. I think the one thing that makes that, that ameliorates that, I guess, inclusion or rather that deviation from the, the suspense by including that is that he just gets blown away, which I think, well, in the movie, which I think, again, I don't think viewers maybe expected that. I don't know that they expected to see Farnsworth take a gunshot, you know, a shotgun to the chest, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. I think this was meant to be a piece of hope, right? You do have this closed room, this closed area where he's confined. He can't even get out of the room for a large chunk of the movie. And you have this other story and you're like, surely this sheriff, if we're investing time with him, is going to solve the case. And I just have to wonder from a moviegoer perspective, does is that why it's there it's meant to be almost this red herring of like well of course the sheriff he's this nice guy he's going to be the one to eventually rescue paul and then subverting the expectation he doesn't do it like if you're not familiar with the book you don't know that you might think he's the guy who comes and saves the day and so i I definitely hear what you guys are saying but i just wonder i mean in the hands of rob reiner right up to this point he's not a suspense thriller movie maker right? right he's making harry when harry met sally and well i mean it's stand um, by me right i mean that was like probably his most and true. even that's not a suspenseful horror it's not but it's honestly how he got the job stephen king stipulation yeah. because again a lot of his movies have gotten ruined by tv and movies his stipulation in castle rock making this movie is that reiner direct it yeah. yeah because specifically he liked what he did with stand by me and his adaptation of the body yeah. Which is interesting. But again, I, I just wonder if part of that is just Rob Reiner's sensibilities of like, well, we need this other character. We need this cutaway of hope to take us out of this space. But ultimately it, it falls through. I don't know. I had forgotten in rewatching Misery. I completely forgot that Farnsworth got blown away. Like I, I honestly went in thinking like, okay, we know he doesn't get run over by the lawnmower, but I can't remember. I know he finds Paul in the basement, but I could not remember until the moment that that old man took it in the chest. It was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> well, and also like Chris, I, I think once again, this goes back to uh, casting. And I think that you're absolutely right. The power of casting Farnsworth, which again, I don't agree with that sort of seeding it through the entire movie approach, but I understand it because yeah, at the end of that movie, no one's sitting there thinking, ah, they're going to whack Farnsworth. No, they figure that because it's him specifically that, yeah, he's going to be the man, you know? Yeah. And he's not, and that, that is like a very good trope of the horror genre. I think in a lot of ways to sort of like kill the hope and in a very concrete way, like, oh, you, you thought you were going to get out. I could think of so many horror movies that have like robbed that from us as a, as a means to increase the dread level. But the, the end of the movie comes very quickly after that moment. And I think that's kind of like a liability of the film. If this movie were made today, it would probably be closer to three hours long And I do think that that moment would have happened more like two thirds of the way through 
And then we would have built a little more toward the final battle between Annie and Paul. It felt a little rushed, like that last third. I know in my head, like there's a lot more story here, but I also know the movie really was intent on wrapping up at around two hours. So uh, this is definitely a story that I think could be adapted to a much longer uh, form and probably still be every bit as engrossing. So I'd love to see it as a miniseries. I've always wanted to see if, if somebody took the actual book and did that version of it. And again, not to denigrate the movie, the movie as its own thing is beautiful. Right. But, you know, King, and this is going to sound absurd, but to me, I, I actually do mean it. King and Shakespeare, two writers that you can take their works and just keep making them over and over from different angles and different perspectives. Yes. You can have a hundred Hamlets and you can have most of them be excellent in very different ways. And I feel that way about Stephen King stuff. And I feel it like, yeah, you could do the version with the ax and with the birthday cake and with all the excerpts from the misery book that he's writing. I would love to see maybe an eight to 10 episodes because you could do it. That's absolutely my dream, in fact. And and I will say uh, Netflix has done probably the most gorgeous treatments of some of Stephen King's work that True. I have seen in a number of years. And in fact, I did write down in my notes, um, if you're looking for a story, which King is like, he is so good at kind of locking his characters in a room and making them confront themselves which I think is is something that is a masterclass of it here in Misery, but he also does it so well in Gerald's Game, uh, which is for me one of his pinnacle works. I adore this book, the and movie I think it's astonishing. Yeah, yeah. the The movie was adapted, and it's on Netflix. Stars uh, Carla Gugino in the lead role because it's literally after the first ten minutes is a one woman show. Well, and also um, Bruce Greenwood in, in the film. Oh, yes, yes. Very good point. story that's like, how do you, reading this, how do you adapt this? It's crazy to think that anyone could look at this and think, yes, a movie, I can do it. And they did. Mike Flanagan. I did. Oh, Mike Flanagan, yes. Okay, so thank you, Kelly. I fl- completely forgotten. I am a Flanagan stan and completely forgot. So yeah, I feel like uh, Haunting of Hill House and, and Bly Manor and, oh, Dr. Sleep. Honestly, can we get Flanagan to do the Dark Tower too? For God's yes. sake. Um, but Gerald's Game, for those who don't know, and very quick rundown, man and woman at a remote lakeside cabin playing a sexy game of handcuffed to the bedpost. Um, the husband's more into it than the wife. They start to have a fight. She doesn't want to do this anymore. He's getting creepy about it. She's already handcuffed to the bed. She wants him to stop. He He's not stopping. <laughs> he's well, getting rapey about it is what's happening. He is. He is. And well, what does she do? She kicks him to get him off her, but she kicks him in the chest. He dies of a fucking heart attack. He's dead on the floor and she's handcuffed to the bed in the middle of nowhere. Naked, by the way. And there's a dog that comes around as she's trying to figure out how to get free of this and starts eating her husband as he's lying dead on the floor. (laughs) In addition to that, there's also a serial killer type who is getting into the house uh, and causing some disruption all while she herself is having a confrontation in her own mind of, of things that happened during her childhood. And, uh, Meanwhile, her hands are going completely numb and she's trying to figure out how to get a glass of water so that she can at least have something to drink. This book is a perfect study 
of resourcefulness and terror and horror and, and just, oh God, it is, it's a stunning work. Please check it out on Netflix. If you liked misery for what it did with the claustrophobia and sort of like limited, uh, set space to tell a very scary and harrowing tale, I think you will really like this one. So, uh, this is just, I think something he has, like that's part of his wheelhouse because he's so good at getting into a character's head. And honestly, that was a movie I didn't think would adapt. Well, it adapted beautifully. And on the same note, Netflix also adapted, uh, his novella 1922 from his collection, full dark, no stars, which is a spectacular little creepy harrowing novella. If you have a fear of rats, you were forewarned. And Uh that's all I'm going to say about that. But also he has this touch for like this sort of rural noir that is just incredible. So check that one out as well. But I will say, yes, please let there be a a miniseries adaptation because I do feel like that despite the fact that this story takes place in the the mid eighties and that there's some aging factors due to that, I feel like the remote setting and the circumstances of his captivity, that this is a story that could be set in today's world with almost no change at all. If a modern day detective got a hold of this, they might have cell phone data to like triangulate his location, or they might have GPS. But then again, maybe they wouldn't have any of that because the phone could be destroyed in a wreck or Annie could have destroyed it. Or the GPS would be useless if the car's destroyed. It's only going to show where he wrecked. It's not going to show what happened after he was carried away in the middle of a blizzard and yeah, people, people go missing up in the mountains all the time. So there would for sure be a true crime podcaster who was like, no, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, (laughs) but that lady that might've killed all the babies lives near there. And I'm pretty sure she runs this misery Chastain fan page. Oh my God, Kelly. Yes. That that would have to be added. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you, you guys are laying this out. And once again, these things are endlessly adaptable. I could see that version being made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With no problem whatsoever, honestly. And it wouldn't ultimately really change the story fundamentally. No. It would be bothersome. It wouldn't. I, I think if anything, it it harkens back to, as you said, uh, Josh, about the timelessness, the, the sort of Shakespearean aspect of a story, of these stories that King writes and that that Shakespeare wrote and, and how they can be continuously adapted over time. I can't think of very many that couldn't be adapted to fit the modern age or to be adapted in, you know, the long ago, as again, when I mentioned 1922, that is the year in which it's set and it works very well in that period. And in that location, I mean, honestly, so many of King's very, very famous works, and they have been adapted and readapted over time to varying effects. Like Carrie has had a remake and pet cemetery has come and gone a couple times. And, and, um, although to varying degrees of success, I think, I feel like some of them are harder to adapt than others, but I feel like this story, given how stark it is in terms of its set pieces and in terms of, you know, what it requires, I feel like, oh my God, yeah, the story can absolutely be told over and over again in in various eras and, you know, with or without technology. I love this idea of though, of, you know, the fact that, yeah, Annie in 2022, she might very well have a podcast about 
the misery series or yes, true crime people, you know, somebody posts about this on Reddit, missing the missing Paul Sheldon. <laughs> like, Oh my God, the subreddit. <laughs> oh my God. Could you imagine? I mean, they would be as toxic as, as, <laughs> any of the other true crime communities around like Maura Murray and, you know, anybody who follows true crime, I'm sure you can already think on, on top of your head what that would look like if a, a very famous person went missing the speculation that would circulate on Twitter and yeah, Reddit and everything would just be, that would be the new element to be brought in. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because there are still parts of this country. I drove from Washington state to Ohio 10 years ago. And I would say 75% of that trip, I couldn't get cell service. I would imagine I'm about to drive across the country again here pretty soon. It's going to be probably a lot of the same in parts of it. There's a large part of this country that is very much not connected to the world in terms of cell phones and internet. So if, if you drop off the face of the earth in one of these places, uh, good luck, good luck to you, sir, or (laughs) ma'am, like you're not getting found. Uh, and if you're taken to the house of Annie Wilkes, she's probably not going to have a lot of that stuff either. I think Annie Wilkes's house exists in its own pocket dimension of time and space. It's just its own place and there's no getting in and out very easily and that therein is is what makes the story so great is that it can't exist anywhere at any time and uh if you're going into the mountains to write a story and you want to head home please don't try to beat the blizzard just just wait it out you're a rich author especially who can afford a bottle of dom uh it's your it's your fancy little cabin you can afford to stay a few extra nights <laughs> to not get wrecked in a blizzard on the way home. And uh, yeah, so that's all I have to say about that, guys. I mean, what about <laughs> you? I mean, I I feel like we've picked this thing straight down to the carcass and then some, but if you have any more to add, please. Well, hopefully everybody has stopped listening by now, but in defense of Annie Wilkes. <laughs> I mean, it's, he's so mean to her, like almost immediately. And there are reasons to hate her, but the fact that she's bought all of his books and has read them multiple times, like that doesn't make her a bad person. Yeah. The fact that she holds you prisoner and makes you write a sequel and then makes you do it her way, like that makes her a bad person. But you know, the fact that she likes your books, like just say thank you. Jesus Christ. Just say thank you. If you are taken in by a stranger and they're being very gracious to you up until the point that they, they lose their temper on you and dump soup on your lap, then just be, be cool, man. Be cool. I would say this about that though. Um, in terms of, cause I, and, and what did I say? that Kel and I would be on uh, opposing sides of this table yeah. to a certain degree. Oh, are we going to talk about our, uh, our opposing viewpoints on when people kill characters? Cause I, there you go. There <laughs> it is. That's what I was, yeah. Um, but rather than go in that direction, although I certainly could, as we all know, because I am the Texas chainsaw massacre of killing people's beloved characters in my work and God, have I gotten grief for that. Um, <laughs> I will say this instead. So much of the book, once more, is centered around the study of Annie Wilkes's specific mental illness in ways that are not just tied to her fandom, but also 
separate from it, even if they happen to feed on it. Right. And so even though she is the face of a large swath of the audience that King was commenting on, and there's a lot to unpack there, which we have done, I think the bottom line after going through the entire movie or the entire book and coming away with it, you really get the sense that what King was saying was not book lovers are crazy people, but that there are crazy people out there who are book lovers and that that can very much be how that manifests. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a very good way to put it. And I also feel like another, another great message too, is creators in general, regardless of the product that they're making, whether it's books or videos or podcasts or whatever, they, they tend to get up their own ass a good bit after a while. And that's easy to do. And if you happen to know someone or live with someone or whatever, who is one of these people, Uh, Your patience with them is greatly appreciated and (laughs) any attempt you make to bring them out of their own ass is also greatly appreciated because I feel like, you know, we tend to ruminate. Rumination is part of the creative process in a lot of ways. We, you know, think about all the ins and outs and what have you of the world and, and people's motivations and people in general. And, and we tend to just get in, in these little spirals and, anything that gets us out of those so that we don't end up in a place where, as you said, Josh, we end up in that equal place of, of fame and self-loathing is greatly appreciated. And I, I kind of wish Paul's agent had been a little more (laughs) instrumental that way or anybody in Paul's life. Like, Hey dude, you, you have a pretty great success here and we should probably try to just step back a little bit once in a while and appreciate the, the overall scope of things. Um, a little more in this, this gift that has brought us and the world, you know, a lot of joy. Um, so, and that's, that's easier said than done. I can absolutely say that as someone on Paul Sheldon's side of things, not that I'm as rich and famous as Paul Sheldon by any stretch, but as definitely as someone who even as recently as last night was like, yeah, uh, I probably don't want to write anything anymore. Like I'm just kind of in that mode right now, uh, of like, fuck it. I'm done. I just want to work on my podcast and not do any more book writing. I really need that spring cleaning book though. I know you. Yeah. So, ah, I need to get it done and get over myself and, or be kidnapped and forced under duress to finish my projects. <laughs> That's the moral of the story, right? I there. mean, I volunteer as tribute and we could have a lot of fun. We could watch some Ted Lasso. You could do some writing. It would be a great time for everybody. All right, Kelly, you know, grab the sledgehammer, <laughs> grab the duct tape. We're, we're down. I've always wanted to go to Baltimore. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think I have the stomach for wet work. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did somebody say my name? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, and you're lucky because Josh can cook. So, oh, well, you know, better than uh, Annie Wilkes. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Annie didn't know how to cook very well, did she? That like, I remember that mentioned in the book, like Paul lost a lot of weight. He was a very skinny man (laughs) by the time it was all said and done. Um, Okay, guys. Well, we've talked for a long time. We've unpacked this thing and as best we could. I loved having all of you here. I've learned a lot actually about a book that I thought I knew a lot about and the movie process and the things that I didn't know uh, about like the actors that were meant to be in it that weren't and the scenes that were meant to be in it and weren't. And I don't know. I feel like if 
I, as the quote unquote scholar of King that I present myself as didn't know these things. And you, the, the listeners out there probably learned a heck of a lot more too. And, and I'm very grateful for that. So I am going to wrap this up, but in the meantime, please give us a shout out on uh, Twitter at DD darkness time, or head over to Apple and give us a uh, review there and a rating. That would be really fantastic. It really helps the show to do that. If you have any questions or comments that you, you know, want to make about this particular topic or the show, hit me up at gmail at ddarknesstime at gmail.com. Other than that, I am going to wrap this up here and we're going to bring you a fresh new uh, Stephen King story to dissect and pick apart next week. And thank you so much for tuning in. And yeah, that's it guys. Say goodbye. We're, we're going, we're, we're fading into the dark, you know, like say a, say a last word or two. <laughs> Listen to the press play and scream podcast for the love yes. of God. Somebody oh has my to. God. Okay. You're absolutely right. Yes. Please. God. Yes. Listen to the press play and scream. Listen we, to 80s high. We are high. everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So is 80s high. Chris's podcast. Yeah. Is- if you want a murderous uh, antidote, you can head on over to 80s high. Yeah. Does this, you know, pick this one apart. Does it stand the test of time? Uh, Is it still relevant? Chris, using your 80s high sensibilities, does this show still, or does this, I'm sorry, the show, don't analyze the show yet. (laughs) Does the movie still stand the test of time? Does it pass the 80s high curriculum? You know, it's a 90s movie, but I'll make a, a, a decade violation and say, yes, the answer is yes. Yes, speak for Ben. Ben, you gotta accept it. Yes, Chris speaks. Sorry, Ben. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming and we will see you later. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding dongs. (laughs) 